0: have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seems good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certain certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please have a seat. And uh, it would be helpful if you would um, uh, keep your service sheets in front of you. We're going to be particularly focused on that first gospel reading. The first uh, gospel reading, that first excerpt, is the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. The second excerpt is almost the end of the Gospel of Luke. And we're starting today a series in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and it's oh, it's hard to overstate the significance of the Gospel of Luke in the history of really humanity. I know that's a big statement. If you're not familiar, the Gospel of Luke, which is, um, which we're going to be thinking about today, is uh, one of the four uh, ancient accounts of Jesus's life. And the Gospel of Luke's impact is just incalculable for all kinds of reasons, but um, there's a few famous examples of the impact of the gospel of Luke um one of the most famous ones is uh, that the gospel of Luke has an account of the dignity of women for instance that was really unheard of in the day 2000 years ago uh in if you read and we're going to be reading this over the next few weeks if you read the first for instance just the first two chapters Of Luke's Gospel. Uh, Luke, the writer, front-foots a series of women and sets them up as paragons of faith, uh, uh, um, uh, paragons of theological insight uh, and in a way that that really uh, toppled many of the social conventions of the day. So, and he names them Elizabeth Mary Anna and that's just the first two chapters of 24. Um, and I don't know any ancient text outside the Bible that highlights the dignity of women in the way that the Gospel of Luke does. And it's just an example of the way in which the Gospel of Luke is a revolutionary text. And it's not that that's one example, but there's many more. Um, uh, the Gospel of Luke uh, consistently dignifies uh, the poor and the weak, And the marginalized. In fact, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, who uh, through whom Luke articulates what, and Mary articulates uh, some of the key themes of the whole gospel, uh, later on in chapter 1, she puts it this way, she says, God puts down the mighty from their thrones and exalts the humble and meek. And that summarizes one of the key themes of the whole gospel. In other words, according to the Gospel of Luke, when God breaks in on this world to rescue people, uh, he does not uh, necessarily respect the social conventions of the culture he's breaking into, uh, and therefore many people that we instinctively admire, God humbles and sometimes even humiliates. And a lot of the people we have a tendency to ignore, God exalts. Now, I'm, I'm just trying to point out the ways in which the gospel of Luke is a revolutionary text and it also is important as we launch into this uh, book that that (laughs) if you want to remain really really comfortable um, read something else because the God that we meet in the gospel of Luke takes our expectations and turns them on their head and then says now that I have your attention let me introduce myself it's a revolutionary book. But, but today, what I want to do is introduce the book by asking a, or asking a question about its, its purpose and its aim. Uh, and, and to do that, take a look at that first short excerpt. Um, this is Luke's opener. Uh, He's writing to somebody called uh, Theophilus. We don't know a lot about Theophilus. A lot of people have guesses, but we don't have a lot of reliable information. But we do know that Theophilus was somebody who uh, had some interest or teaching about the Christian faith, but needed certainty. And I take that from uh, verse 4. Luke says this, Uh, basically summarizing. uh, Luke says, I've done a bunch of research. Uh, I've interviewed a bunch of eyewitnesses, Uh, I've composed a story in an orderly way, he says in verse 3, and why has he done all this work? Well, verse 4, here's the purpose, here's the objective of the writing, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've taught, you've been taught. Now catch that claim. Luke says, I have composed and written this story in order that by reading it this guy Theophilus and Luke's other readers down to the present day uh, may have certainty about very very big things like God and Jesus and the nature of the Christian life. Certainty. Now the word certainty can also be uh, translated security. So and I, this strikes me as audacious. Luke expects that uh, this story he's written Uh, can make his readers secure in their grasp of who Jesus is and the nature of the Christian faith. And and I want to know why he thinks that's the case. Why does Luke think that reading this account he's written is going to be so compelling and so powerful that it can create security and certainty within his readers' minds and hearts and maybe more? Now, some of us here are, uh, are, are people who are, who are skeptical of the Christian faith. Some of us here are deeply, deeply committed to the Christian faith. And a lot of us are committed and skeptical, if we're honest. Why should we expect that reading Luke will increase our security and our certainty in, G- in Jesus? Do you see the question? What I want to do is I want to address that question. Why should the Gospel of Luke grant us uh, security and certainty? I want to address that question by pointing out three things. Uh, Something about humanity and how we discern meaning. Number two, something about God and how God discloses himself. And number three, something about Jesus and his unique gift. Uh, First of all, something about humanity and how we gain meaning. Uh, look back at Luke's introduction. Uh, verse 1 says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, say narrative, of the things that have been accomplished among us, then skip to verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you. Now, notice the words narrative in verse 1 and orderly account in verse 3. Now those are key words, why? Well, because right out of the gate, Luke is telling us what kind of literature it is that he's writing. He's writing what he calls an orderly account or a narrative. What does that mean? Well, it means that he's writing a story that is designed to tell us at least two things. On the one hand, this writing is designed to tell us what happened But on the other hand, it's designed to tell us what it means. He's telling us, on the one hand, what happened, meaning he is very concerned. You can see that uh, right in these verses. He's very concerned with accuracy and with historical fidelity. Um, That's why he mentions eyewitnesses. Uh, That's why he mentions uh, ministers of the word who have delivered. That word delivered means faithfully and accurately handed over to me uh, this this these stories it means he's done his research however luke is not just giving us a mere historical archive like a set of historical data points he's giving us an orderly account that is to say he's writing with the intentionality of an artist he's writing in such a manner that every word and every section and every account is curated so that we learn not only what happened but that we may gain insight into why it matters a lot what it means now in doing that in try in 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 uh, in communicating meaning through this story Luke is tapping into something that is very deep within human psychology here's what I mean the human mind Emmanuel is structured to find meaning through story. Um, There's a philosopher called Jonathan Sachs uh, and he writes this. He says, storytelling is of the essence of who we are as meaning-seeking animals. As Barbara Hardy puts it, quote, we dream in narrative, we daydream in narrative, We remember and anticipate. We hope and despair in narrative. We believe and we doubt. We plan. We revise. We criticize. We construct. We gossip in narrative. We learn, hate, and love by narrative. Alistair MacIntyre puts it this way. He says, man, humanity, in his actions and practice, as well as in his fictions, is essentially a storytelling animal. Why do I mention that? Here's why. Remember the question. Luke is writing a story in order to impart security and certainty about God, ourselves, Jesus, and the Christian life. Why in the world would we expect security and certainty to come through a story? And at least part of the answer is this. The human mind is structured in such a way that if we're ever going to have insight about the big questions like, what does it all mean? And significance, why are we here? And life's biggest questions, if we're going to have insight about those things, it's going to have to come through story. It just doesn't really come another way. It's just the way we're made. Um, this is one of the reasons why, and this is a little bit of an aside, this is one of the reasons why science and religion um, are complementary rather than competitive and contradictory. This is why I say that. Uh, this the philosopher and rabbi, uh, Jonathan Sachs, points this out. He says that um, science is very, very, very good at taking things apart so that we can see how they work. But it's not good at putting things together so that we see what they mean. For that, we need something else. And we need, at the very least, a story. And the thing about humans is that we can't stop asking the big questions. Who are we? Why are we here? What does this universe mean? Does it mean anything? And if it doesn't, why am I asking the question? What's the purpose of it all? And why can't I get myself free from that persistent question? Those are questions whose answers only fit inside a story. And it also means that if that's true, if humans can't stop asking the big questions of meaning, and if it's also true that the answer to those big questions of meaning must come to us through the story, then the question becomes this, what story is it that you're living by? What story is it that's giving you meaning? And most urgently, is it true? All right, why is Luke telling us this story? Well, because story is how we discern meaning. And But there's more. Because if you go back to the reading, look at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. Now, I want you to focus on that last phrase, things that have been accomplished among us. Everybody say accomplished. There you go. What does that mean and why is it important? Well, there's a backstory here. And the backstory for that word accomplished uh, has to do with God and how God discloses himself. So in your mind, go back to the uh, second book of the Bible. Um, right at the beginning, it's called the book of Exodus. It's in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. And in the book of Exodus, God starts introducing himself to humanity in, in a really important way. Um, this is uh, well over a thousand years before Jesus. And, and when the scene opens, Israel is enslaved in Egypt. And out in the desert, uh, there's a guy called Moses, and Moses has been exiled from Egypt. It's a long story. But in the middle of the desert, Moses unexpectedly meets God. It, it's the burning bush thing. And now Moses doesn't know God. He's as surprised as you would be. In fact, all of Israel doesn't really know much about God. They have some rumors. And so Moses, in the midst of this conversation with God, says, um, God, who, who are you? What's your name? And God famously responds, I am who I am. Which doesn't really help. And you can also translate it I will be whom I will be and it's like a riddle but part of the point is this it's as if God says to Moses Moses I'm not who you expect it's as if God says I am NOT the God Moses of your imagination I am the God whose." really there. And because I'm the God who's real and not just the fictitious God of your imagination, I am too big to fit within the categories presently residing in your imagination. You don't have the mental categories to adequately grasp who I am. And therefore, Moses, I'm going to introduce you to myself through a different method. I'm going to introduce myself to you and to the world by by telling a story or rather by causing a story to unfold. Not an imaginary story, not a fictitious story. I'm going to introduce myself to you, Moses, and to Israel and through Israel to the world by doing things, by accomplishing things, by doing things in history. And it's as if God says, I'm going to do things and I'm going to accomplish things that you do not expect. And each time I do things and accomplish things that you do not expect in history, I'm going to shatter your expectations about who I am and on the backside of it, you're going to know me better. I am who I am. I will be whom I will be, but differently. Moses, you will know who I am when you watch what it is that I do. And then God proceeds to do just that. He accomplishes things. He does things that are unexpected. And it began when God uh, accomplished Israel's liberation from Egypt. Nobody saw that coming. And each time God uh, accomplishes something, he does then three things. He does something to rescue his people. He then explains what it is that it means. And then thirdly, he says, just wait, there's more to come. And so in the story of Exodus, God liberates Israel, God takes them into the desert to explain what it is that it all means, that includes the Ten Commandments, and then he promises that there's more to come. There's more accomplishing that God's going to do in the future. And that pattern uh, repeats right down through all of the Hebrew scriptures, the, the Old Testament. In each case, God discloses himself in a story, not a story made up by humans, but the unexpected accomplishments in history of the God who's actually there. All right, keep all that in your mind. That's the backstory. Come back to verse 1. Luke says he's going to tell a story about things that have been accomplished. And Can you see his point? He's saying that his story is the culmination of God's self-disclosure. He's saying all through the Old Testament, God self-disclosed by accomplishing things, explaining what they mean, and promising more to come. And Luke's saying, I'm going to tell you, Theophilus, the story of God accomplishing those things that were yet to come. Except it's maybe even, we could say it better. Luke is saying, Theophilus, this is not just the continuation of the story. This is the culmination of God's story of self-disclosure. So why is it that Luke says that we can gain certainty through reading this story? Well, the first reason is because story is the language of human meaning. The second reason is that story in history of God accomplishing things is the story, is the the language of God's self-disclosure. And do you remember what we said a few minutes ago? Human beings... Can't stop asking the big questions of meaning. And that leads us to the third thing that this story gives us a window into Jesus' unique gift. We can't stop asking the big questions of meaning. And we also can't help addressing those big questions of meaning through telling ourselves a story. The question is, what story are you telling yourself and is it true? Well, according to Luke, Jesus came, and we're gonna see this unfold throughout the whole of the story, Jesus came as the conclusion to God's story of self disclosure. Jesus makes God clear to us, but it's not just that. Jesus also came to draw us into God's story. Now what do do I mean by that? Well take a look now at the second excerpt. This is almost the end of Luke's Gospel. Jesus has already died upon the cross and when Jesus died all of his disciples thought that Jesus was finished because you know that's what happens when people die. But then God disclosed himself through the unexpected accomplishment in history, and the biggest unexpected accomplishment in history was Jesus's resurrection from the dead. And this excerpt is the moment that Jesus shows up at the house where the disciples are staying, and and, you know it's the big reveal, it's the big surprise. Now remember, Luke's account is based on eyewitnesses who have delivered these things faithfully to him, And, and that's why you get the fun little details about the barbecued fish. And Jesus saying, um, "Look at my body, I'm not dead, I'm not a ghost." But then, having having uh, clarified what has been accomplished, Jesus shows the meaning. Verse forty five, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And Jesus said to them, "Thus it is written." So he's going to summarize the whole of the Hebrew scriptures, the whole of the Old Testament. "Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer." And on the third day rise from the dead, and the repentance for the forgiveness of the sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things." So Jesus sits down with them in the midst of their uh, disbelief and fear and grief. And after showing them what has been accomplished through his physical body, he then begins to explain its meaning. And he does that by telling them the story. It's the story that they had heard in synagogue all their lives, and yet it was an entirely new story. It was the story of God's self-disclosure. It's the story of God God breaking into history, accomplishing things, and displaying who he is. And as Jesus described this story, they realized that this was the story that addressed the deepest questions of their lives. But it's not just that, it still goes further. Because the story that Jesus is telling joins up God's story of self-disclosure with every human story. It joins up God's story of self-disclosure with my story and with your story, how does it do that? Well, the climax of God's story of self-disclosure is Jesus. The climax of Jesus' story is his suffering and his death. Why? Why his suffering and his death? Because at the cross of Christ, humanity's story and God's story join up. At the cross, in Jesus, God entered the human story of sin and guilt. And alienation, alienation, the search for meaning. And always, it's always slipping through our fingers. We tell ourselves stories and we think that maybe we found meaning and significance and all of those sorts of things. But as the story of our lives unfolds very often, it's slipping beyond our fingers and we feel alienated, alienated from those who are closest to us, alienated from our family, alienated in the midst of our world, alienated at work, alienated in any number of ways. And then as our lives unfold, we start to age and we realize realize that death is coming, the ultimate alienation. But Jesus entered into all of that. Why did he enter into all of that? He entered into our experience and our story so that he could draw us into his story, into his story of intimacy with God the Father, and into his vocation as being ambassadors of God's better story. In the words of this reading, Jesus suffered death and then rose again so that we could repent. Well, there's a churchy word. What does it mean? Repentance is many things. Here's here's part of it. Repentance is a shift in allegiance. Repentance is when we uh, take our self-invented story and our allegiance to our self-invented story and we turn that over and in exchange, we receive and we put our allegiance in God's story of self-disclosure in Jesus. And as we give away our story that we've relied on up until this point, and as we place our trust in God's story in Jesus Christ, we find ourselves secure, secure and certain in the midst of the story for which we were made and that we've been always looking Now, Emmanuel, that's the gift that Jesus wants to give us as we go through Luke over these next many months. He wants to meet us in this story. And he wants to introduce us to himself anew through his unexpected accomplishments in the midst of this world. And he wants to meet us now by his Holy Spirit to open our minds to see that his story is the beautiful answer to the deepest questions of our lives. So friends, if you want to be comfortable, read something else. But if you want your life turned upside down, and if you want entrance into the story for which you were made, come and read this book. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, Our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emanuelanglicannyc.com give.